There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Inflation has come down. We think it's going to continue to come down. But to get it back to target, which we must do, we're going to have to hold interest rates in what I call a sort of restrictive setting yeah, for, for some extended period. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. That is Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, last month talking about how the central bank was keeping interest rates on hold, and they've done that again since. And whilst he's saying they might have to raise them again if inflation bounces back, investors are betting on bond rates based on interest rates coming down sooner rather than later. So why are we so fixated on interest rates? How do they work? And what would happen if we had an interest rate that just didn't move, a fixed interest rate? I mean, it would do get rid of a lot of speculation and uncertainty, which might do a few people out of a job. But would it also mean we'd lose control of inflation? We'll look at that this week on the Debugging Economics podcast. So interest rates, I think they're inevitable, aren't they? Even without banks. So if I lend money to someone, I want it back with a bit extra to compensate for two things. First of all, the risk I need to factor in for the loan, you know, going bad and not getting paid back. And secondly, I guess there's the lost opportunity of using the money for something else. And presumably, the more people want to borrow with a limited number of borrowers, then the higher those interest rates are going to be. If I know that I'm the only one lending money, then I'm going to charge more for it. I mean, Steve, that is fundamentally how interest rates work and why they exist, isn't it? Even if we didn't have banks, that is that is just the natural order of things, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, and, and I've, you know, I've been through a personal experience that I never want to repeat. Um, but if you lend money to someone, then you can't spend it yourself. And we're talking in terms of individuals who can't create money. So if I lend money from myself mm. to Fred Nurk and Fred Nurk tries not to pay me back or uh, or whatever. If Fred, you know, Fred Nurk can spend the money and I can't, and then when it's repaid, I can spend the money and Fred Nurk can't. Um, so that, that's getting into the you know, what macroeconomic effect this has. But as an individual, if you lend money to somebody, then that means your spending power gets reduced. And of course, people will say, well, you know, unless you're doing it for somebody you want to be generous to, then you want some return for uh, for the inconvenience of not being able to use your own money. And it's a liquidity thing as well, isn't it? Like you have to, you're going to charge more if you're going to tie up the money for longer because you have to say, well, okay, if I need it in a year's time, that money isn't going to be available. So first of all, I've got to have enough cash to be able to lend it out. But also I'm going to charge you more uh, because you're tying it up for longer. Hence this this, you know, which we see in bond yields, for example, the longer the term of the loan, the higher the interest is going to be because you are tying it up for longer. But also there's more uncertainty about what's going to happen in that, uh, you know, in that intervening time. If you've got money tied up for 10 years, who knows, um, you might have had an opportunity to use the money on something. Interest rates may have changed a great deal. Inflation might have, uh, have, have changed as well. So you have to factor all of that in 
for the longer the period of the loan, which is how, the way government bonds work and, and yields work. Yeah, but then we're transgressing from people who can't create money to people who can. So we've got to you know cha- change yeah. the nature of our mm. discussion. But fundamentally, the, the big the big thing is your uncertainty about the future. You know, you might lend somebody money uh, and, and then expect your income to continue on as it was beforehand, so you can handle not having the cash buffer. And then suddenly something happens you weren't anticipating, and bang, you need that cash buffer, but you're doing without it. So um, if, if somebody is, like, if you do it informally, people can often forget that particular issue. I forgot that particular issue. <laughs> um, but uh, if you're doing it as a regular business, yeah. then you're going to be factoring that in. And then we're talking about money lenders and uh, and rates of interest from money lenders. And uh, they will charge extremely high rates uh, for a number of reasons. But, but yeah, if you're in the business of lending money, um, then you have to factor in the, pro- the possibility of it not being repaid. And if you have a whole range of clients, then some of them are not going to be re- able to repay. And then you have you know, uncertainty about the future. Uh, you know, and, and those all get factored into how we think about interest rates. Right. But I mean, all of that is good. But the question is, of course, I mean, as I say, it's the natural way of things, isn't it? Unless, of course, you know, you're giving a loan to, I don't know, you, you know, your own personal circumstance. I, would, I wouldn't charge interest to my kids, for example, but unless some people do because they think, well, it's a good lesson for the kids. Uh, so why not? But it becomes a problem, doesn't it, when people are making money out of having money? They're making money from interest without doing any real work, you know, passive income. And if you've got a lot of money and you can make a lot of money from passive income, then that starts to become a bad thing for society. And that was the argument that the classical economists had towards Rontiers. They said that if you give money to people, um, and they regarded uh, Rontiers as both people lending money uh, without doing any work themselves, and then also um, landlords who could give the land to a, a tenant farmer and then expect your share of the revenue simply because they owned the land. And uh, the physiocrats were quite funny on this in a sense because they were brutally honest. The people who own the land and normally those who've taken it by force from people in the past and then give themselves titles of lords and ladies. Uh, but in fact, what they were, were initially were robbers. Um, and, and so so the, there was a much more nuanced attitude towards uh, getting a rate of return on money from the classical school of economics and its predecessors, the physiocrats, than we get today. So, and does it count as GDP? If I if I give a loan to somebody, I mean, I know it sort of balances itself out, doesn't it? If I give a loan to you, you've got the money I haven't anymore. But does it influence GDP, the measure of GDP? Because obviously, if I give a loan to you and you make good use of it, and you know, it was just going to sit in my bank account doing nothing then it's got a more productive use. So surely it is helping with the GDP of the country. Well, this is where it gets complicated, and this is where neoclassical economics goes off the rails, uh, because you know, it, it, in the strict case, if, if you... If I, if I sold you, you know, a new microphone, uh, then you pay me for the new microphone and there's a transfer of money and that turns up in GDP. Uh, but if I lend you money to go and buy a new microphone, then the lending is independent of GDP. The part that creates the GDP is you 
spending that, but for you to spend that money on on the microphone, it means I might not be able to buy a new set of headphones. So your increase in GDP is offset by my fall in GDP, and overall there's no there's no necessary change unless you're more you're more of a spendthrift than me, right. which is unlikely. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, so, <laughs> Out of necessity, perhaps. But I mean, just uh, uh, over those two scenarios again, just very quickly. Sorry, sorry, I understand. So if you give me money, mm. uh, well, I mean, first of all, that's of never going to happen. But if you do, then that's n- that's not counted as. GDP in the same way. My, my mum gives me a bit of money for Christmas, for example. It's not kind of GDP. But if you give me the money, it's to- different when a bank gives you the money. And this is where mainstream economics goes off the rails by using an analogy from private individuals giving each other loans to banks giving uh, uh, customers loans. In, in when you, if you I lend you money, then my deposit account falls and your deposit account goes up by precisely as much. What we've done is reallocate where money exists in the economy. We haven't created any money. And then if you spend using that borrowed money, you you will spend more on something than you could have done without my loan, but I necessarily have less money to spend. So the two balance out. And if you read, I don't recommend it, but if you read neoclassicals like Ben Bernanke, you'll find him saying that that a a loan is a pure redistribution, which absent uh, implausibly high differences in marginal propensities to consume between groups should have no significant macroeconomic effects. That's a quote from the paper after the one he wrote that gave him the bloody Nobel Prize uh, and saying fundamentally rejecting Irving Fisher's explanation of the Great Depression, uh, which saying it was a debt deflation. And Menanke literally said that the debt deflation is no more than a a transfer from one group uh, debtors to another group creditors. Uh, which itself is stupid, but anyway, um, that that basically said, well, you know, changing levels of debt uh, between individuals, increasing the level of debt outstanding because of those sorts of loans, shouldn't have any impact on the economy, and they're they're dead wrong, because when a bank creates a loan, uh, it 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 isn't a transfer of money from one bank account to another. It's an increase in the assets of the bank. The loan goes up, and it's an increase in the liabilities of the bank. The borrower's money goes up, but nobody borrows for the sheer benefit, the sheer pleasure of being in debt. You borrow to spend, and so that borrowed money is then spent buying goods and services off somebody else. Right. And that adds to aggregate demand. So on that basis, I mean, it's obviously a good thing in that case if it's adding to that aggregate demand. So how do banks arrive at the interest rate that is uh, th- that is going to allow that to happen? How is that determined? Well, I mean, if you, the, the starting point in a modern economy is the central bank uh, sets a reference rate, which is then the rate that banks have to borrow for each other if they if they borrow reserves from each other. You know, settlements funds a better way to describe it, but that's that's the rate that the the central bank sets, and then that is used as a reference point by uh, private banks. They will charge that rate plus a margin, which reflects their costs of. You know, cost of doing business. Banks, you know, it definitely involve physical costs uh, and wage costs and things like that to to run a bank, plus the profit margin they want, uh, and then plus their allowances for bad loans and and so on. And a lot of this also reflects, of course, the rate of inflation. So there's a there's a markup process that goes on between the rate that the central bank sets and the rate that the banks themselves charge. But um, it's there's, there's no. It's, it's often seen by uh, conventional economists that this is a, uh, 
uh, you know, supply and demand issue. This is all effectively price setting, first of all, by the central bank to set what they think should be the base rate of interest, and then additional margins put on top of that by the private banking sector. Right. And they set it based on what they want to do to the economy. I mean, that's what they argue, isn't it? If they I mean, if they set the rate too high- the central bank. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, the central bank does. So if they set the rate too high, uh, then uh, that might deter investment so businesses aren't you know, able to invest in the machinery or- uh, whatever they need to sell more goods and services so the economy doesn't grow. But that's you know that, that's when they say they want to cool things. So they set the interest rate high to try and stop the economy growing too quickly. This is where we start getting into and yeah. does it work is the question. No. Yeah. <laughs> this is where we start getting caught up in neoclassical nonsense for a whole range of reasons. But the most important reason reason is that the the belief that mainstream economists have has been you, you trace back where it comes from and it comes back from the concepts that some of the classical economists had of a natural rate of interest. And certainly the neoclassicals and Austrians had this idea of a, a natural rate of interest, which is a bit like supply and demand in, in normal uh, goods and goods and services as a dollar price. And they thought supply and demand in terms of loanable funds is a rate of interest. And then if you have an increase in the rate of interest, more people want to want to lend, less people want to borrow. A uh, fall, more people want to borrow, less people want to lend. There's an equilibrium rate. And that's that the market should set that rate. And that's the vision that they use. Um, but it's, it's flawed thinking when you apply it to a... A, a, a national economy and the rates set by the government. The biggest thing about it, and we can get back to that other point in a moment, is that that was seen by uh, Hicks as being the control mechanism for the rate of investment. So the higher the rate of interest, the lower the rate of investment, because people could anticipate the future revenues they were going to get out of out of uh, various investment projects, and they then discount that by the rate of interest. So if you put the rate of interest up, you'd make more projects unprofitable, reduce the rate of investment, uh, reduce the rate of interest, you'd increase the level of investment. And that saw the rate of interest as the main controller on the level of investment in an economy. And as Keynes argued, that's not the main control. The main control is how uncertain you are about the future. And if you are very uncertain about the future, it's not like you've got, you know, you know, there's been a financial crisis, you want to charge a higher rate of interest because you're not sure you're going to get your money back. Your investment, mm. part of your investment is going to be determined by your expectations of the future. And the rate of interest is relatively trivial in that. So it's investor right. confidence. So you're throwing in the risk, you're throwing in the risk factor. But yeah. the, the interest rate would, I mean, it's still, you're still working with you know unknowns and trying to set a level of risk, so the interest rate would still be important there, wouldn't it? If you go well, okay, not as, imp- not, not as important need- as your expectations. Well, if, if if you think the future is looking really bright, though, the, you might be prepared to accept a higher interest rate. If you think the future is looking a bit glum, uh, then you might think, well, it's not worth borrowing unless the interest rate is exceedingly low and I'm getting a you know a, a better return. Perhaps you know getting even down to zero, for example. Yeah, but the, at the same time, what matters is you know, how you think the economy is going to do and how, how you think the uh, your investments are going to do. And this is where you get caught up in speculative uh, investments, which is you know, most borrowed money these days, unfortunately, is used to gamble on asset prices rather than used to build actual productive uh, facilities. And if you were expecting like a 40% rise in the stock market, uh, then you're going to accept any rate of interest up to a, you know, close to 40% to get that borrowed money. So what you get is uh, the the, the, the 
expectations of, of future profit from asset speculation can be far higher than the rate of interest. And therefore, it's incredibly hard to stop uh, a, a financial bubble using interest rates. Well, you, you and I, you, I'm talking to somebody who know this bloke. You remember Christopher Scase? Well, of course, yes. Uh, an Australian disgraced property developer. He was a journalist, actually. Originally. And he switched yeah. over to property, mm. property speculation and started building expensive uh, residential complexes uh, around the country. Um, and uh, and 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 charged enormous prices for you know supposedly exclusive residential uh, complexes in various locations around the around the, the country, and. In fact, what he was really doing was gambling on rising asset prices. He really had his cash flow was negative for most of his projects, and he was funded by Larry Adler. And I've forgotten FAI. I think the company was Larry Adler, Larry and Rodney Adler. You probably even met Rodney Adler, and the Father and Son Act. And because. Uh, case was so speculative in the projects he was putting on, normal banks wouldn't touch him. But uh, Adler's company did. And they'd play, Adler, my father and son, played a game where they'd alternate who would meet with Scase when he came in asking for the next loan. And he always needed a next loan because he was getting bridging finance before the asset sale uh, because he wasn't getting enough cash flow with the assets. So without new loans, he couldn't repay the old ones. And they, the play game was that they one would suggest an interest rate to him, and when he came in the next time round, you know, three or whatever months later, uh, the other a member, a father or son would would offer this rate plus one percent, just waiting to see at what rate Skate would finally say no, and he didn't say no up to and including a rate of interest wow. of twenty three percent. So yeah, what could what could possibly go wrong there? <laughs> well, so, the, the, the interest rate didn't really work as a control. Uh, because the guy was expecting 40% appreciation on his assets and wanted to continue being able to pay the previous loan back and pay all his you know, worker costs and so on. Uh, so he could make the point where the asset sale could occur and bang, he was free. And the classic thing about Scase was he decided to globalize and he went, he put in a takeover offer for MGM. And there was a very canny investor on MGM's board who didn't believe this guy's financials. So he went through and did a very detailed examination of Scase's finances, found what I'm talking about, and, uh, and then told MGM board not to accept the $3 billion takeover offer that Scase made for MGM. Metro Goldwyn Mayer, for those who don't remember ancient uh, 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 movie producing CDS. companies. Yeah. And, uh, and they turned him down. So he had a $3 billion offer. And one week after they turned him down, he went bankrupt because he couldn't meet a $16 million loan installment payment. Now, if he'd got the three billion, if he'd got the three billion offer accepted, he would have gone to Larry and, and Rodney, got the extra loan he needed to uh, pay pay the purchase price, and paid that sixteen billion dollar outstanding loan instalment out of spare change, and keep on going. So this is why you get such fragility in financial sectors. But if if you uh, if money was only used for speculation. If, and we're pretty close to this anyway, aren't we, really? You know, and it's not used for productive use. It's just used to finance investments in the, you know, in the finance community. Then that idea of equilibrium, you know, that uh, neoclassics uh, economists love and central banks work on, that, you know, that the, the, the point of equilibrium, you know, is where the demand for borrowing and the supply of lending is matched. I mean, if everyone was just borrowing to speculate... 
then that would be true, wouldn't it? Because you wouldn't be dissuaded by the fact that some people might say, well, actually, we're going to pay a bit more because the returns are looking good because the future, we think, is brighter than everybody else thinks. If everyone was just borrowing to speculate, then we'd be closer to that idea of equilibrium, wouldn't we? No, we wouldn't further away because uncertainty about the future is the other variable. And... uh and if you have everybody being confident, then what happens is that they're all willing to borrow. Uh, they're also equally willing to lend. So you get a low rate of interest coming out of those situations. And then when you have everybody fearful about the future, you get a high rate of interest because nobody wants to risk it. So you actually get the interest rate being perverse in that sense, uh, enabling a boom to continue and then crushing the recovery uh, when you would want to get to investment to, to occur again on the other side. So for this reason, Keynes was against the idea of using interest rates to try to control economic activity. And that's what neoclassicals turned it into through Hicks's misinterpretation of the general theory to make it into a, a, you know, a Walrasian model uh, where equilibrium applies. So yet again, this is another case where to quote Keynes, equilibrium is blither. Well, look, when we come back, I want to look more about how central banks arrive at their interest rate, but also why modern monetary theorists think that a neutral interest rate, and we'll, we'll talk about what the neutral interest rate is, but why they think that should actually be zero. So, in other words, nobody, because wouldn't, you know, in that situation, wouldn't nobody lend anything at all, you know, because you'd get uh, you'd get no reward for your lending. So, how, how does that work? We'll look at that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast with me and Steve Keane. Back in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, um, there is an interplay, isn't there, obviously, between how much is charged in interest what we're seeing in terms of growth in the economy and the opportunity that exists, but we, I mean, who knows what that is, but more importantly, what the rate of inflation is. And obviously, that you know, central banks are there trying to control inflation, uh, but I mean, the rate of inflation obviously also influences the interest rate and how much you are prepared to pay. So if I get a low interest rate and uh, for a loan, and I know that in, you know, things, inflation is going up, then I'm going to be very happy. But I'll also probably be prepared to pay a slightly higher interest rate if I know that uh, inflation is going up. So there's this interplay, obviously, between you know what the inflation rate is and what the interest rate is. Yeah, um, and that's you know that's it was like a, a sensible way of looking at it. I remember, like with my own family, my father uh, 
those vendor finance the sale of a country property and the inflation rate with interest rate was 20% because it was 3% above the rate being charged on um, overdrafts at the same time, which is about the high inflation mm. people remember back in the uh, in the 70s and early 80s. And so you, 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 you will, as a lender, want to get a return above the rate of inflation. Um, so that's like the private market, the private uh, banking sector will have that uh, that attitude. But whether they manage it or not is another story. So you'll often find, if you go back and take a look at the historical data, you'll see periods like the 70s and 80s, the rate of interest was below the rate of inflation, even with the attempts of central banks to uh, to modify the level. And, uh, and what that means is, of course, and this is how Hyman Minsky explained stagflation. You had a booming economy leading to high wage demands and high increases in, in uh, raw materials inputs, particularly energy. This is in 73 and 79. Uh, a huge in- increase in shares in, in workers' wage demands, a huge increase in raw materials prices. And the inflation rate was high, but then the economy tanked because of a private debt bubble burst and you had low in- low investment levels with high rate of inflation. And the high rate of inflation actually reduced the accumulated debt in real terms and enabled the economy to, to sputter on without actually completely collapsing. So there is an interplay between the two, but I'm afraid the way the central banks try to manage it is based on neoclassical theory and like most things that they do is off with the fairies. Anyway, it's not working for them. Well, you look at the situation, I mean, it's talking about stagflation. I mean, is that where the UK is right now? Because we've still got very high interest rates uh, and we've got a an economy which has spluttered to zero, basically. Zero, I mean, I think year on year, GDP growth is something like 0.2% in the last quarter. It's flatlined. But in, I mean, that's stagflation, isn't it? But no, what you've got on the other side of the of the Atlantic is America with a relatively booming economy. And the main difference is not yeah. the interest rates. This is what comes down again to the way that Keynes has been distorted by neoclassicals. It's the level of government uh, spending. The, gov- the, the, the UK is running very tight austerity yet again, typical ad- addiction of the UK to austerity. And the Americans are running a, a de- government deficit of about certainly more than 4% of GDP. And that deficit is stimulating demand and also the high interest rates, uh, which are being paid on new bonds that are being issued by the Federal Reserve, are giving yields of 5% to the to the banks that buy them off the federal off the uh, uh, treasury. And that's giving growing the money supplies well in the finance sector. So your difference between the UK and the America doesn't come down to interest rates. It comes down to the level of government spending. So uh, the natural rate of interest is an interesting concept. I love the term natural as though it is part of the natural world rather than something we've artificially created that, uh, you know, uh, animal species obviously will also be concerned about what the natural rate of interest is. Uh, David Attenborough <laughs> should be doing documentaries of here, the natural rate of interest amongst hyenas. But uh, the Bank of England, you know, says it's somewhere to, you know, 2 to 3%. So does the Fed. So does the Bank of Canada. The ECB has it at 1.5%. But of course, it moves depending on stuff. So how are they arriving at this natural rate of interest? And what exactly does it mean oh. in, 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 you know, in their mind and then in reality? Look, in, in their minds, it means this equilibrium between supply and demand for loanable funds, which is the attitude that uh, mainstream economists have had to money 
uh, you know, right from the days of of uh, Valrar and Co. in the in the eighteen seventies. Um, but there's also, and Vixel had a similar concept too, a natural rate uh, of of money supply. That's what they've their foundations are back in that that idea. What they talk about these days is comes from Milton Friedman, and it's the, what they call the NARU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And this was a invention of Friedman's in a, a paper called The Optimal Quantity of Money, uh, where he assumed that money was dropped out of, wait for it, helicopters, um, and dropping money over the country. And uh, that there was, but there was a natural rate that the economy would return to, which was pretty much equal to the rate of economic growth. And this belief that there is a, a rate of interest interest rate, which if you set it, you will get uh, a rate of unemployment. Rather, if you set the rate of unemployment, uh, that will give you a a non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, where if you're at that rate of unemployment, the inflation rate doesn't change. And that's what they think they're trying to target. And when you look at it empirically, it just ends up being a lag uh, measure of the earlier rate of inflation or the earlier rate of unemployment. It's it's a chimera. It's something that doesn't exist, which economists you know, get themselves, get their knickers in a twist, trying to work out its value. Well, I mean, it's whether they strictly adhere to that or not, I mean, they obviously do keep an eye on on the the un- unemployment rate, but uh, perhaps more, you know more than they should. But I mean the the rate they set really is this strange neutral rate. So I didn't want to explore that more about uh, about you know where that really comes from. I mean if it's if it's two percent, you know what does that figure mean? Where does that come from? But I mean they they set their policy base rate based supposedly based on the neutral rate plus what the expectations are for inflation and then whatever they want to load on in terms of how they see that they need to impact the economy. So to the, if they are tightening, they'll add more. If they're easing, they'll take some off. So, I mean, in theory, that sounds okay if you agree on what the neutral rate is. But how do you determine what the neutral rate is it, 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 or the natural rate? I mean, it's 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 just a finger in the air, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's chasing. It, it, it's a dog chasing a non-existent mm. tail. Uh, and, and this is... The, it, you know, if you look at what's happened in the rise in inflation after COVID and, and its fall since, um, banks have interpreted, uh, rather the central banks thought that putting up the interest rates is what controlled the rate of inflation. Uh, but you then look at, you know, where the inflation wasn't coming from excess demand from workers, and this is often the background of what they think, that, you know, the, the high level of inflation is caused by high wage demands by workers and high consumption levels by workers. So let's put up the interest rate and reduce their desire to uh, spend, and therefore we'll get a lower rate of inflation coming out of that. Um, what you actually had was a like a supply chain disruption, uh, increase in markups by firms, which is the argument that Isabella Weber makes quite cogent that that's where the inflation has come from, not from workers' wage demands, but from increasing profit margins by corporations. And the rise and fall of those markups and, and the, and the in the supply chain disruptions with COVID and then their removal, relatively speaking, uh, afterwards, they were the main factors. And, and what the interest rate was and what workers' wage demands were pretty much tangential to the whole story. And your best example of this is, is Japan, which made no change whatsoever to its interest rate, but experienced much the same increase in inflation and then fall back again afterwards. So it's, you know, it, it is not a, the interest rate is not a control and not a fine tuner for the economy in the way that neoclassical economists believe it is. And the main source of their 
fallacy is that they assume we can predict the future accurately. And therefore, the only thing you can do to change our expectations, uh, change our own behavior now, is to change the rate at which we discount that rationally, accurately expected future. And I want to throw in a quote from Keynes here, because uh, this is Keynes from a, a paper called The General Theory of Employment, not the um, general theory book, which is the theory of employment, interest, and, and, and money. Uh, and here's him having a go at people believing you can find things using interest rate. Uh, this is Keynes. Now, a practical theory of the future based on these three principles has certain marked characteristics, in particular being based on so flimsy a foundation, it is subject to sudden and violent changes. The practice of calmness and immobility of certainty and security suddenly breaks down. New fears and hopes will, without warning, take charge of human conduct. The forces of disillusion may suddenly impose a new conventional basis of valuation. All these pretty polite techniques made for a well-panelled boardroom in a nicely regulated market are likely to collapse. And, and that's the real world. That's the instability and the fragility of expectations. And the idea that you can fine-tune expectations by moving the interest rates by one quarter of a percent at monthly meetings is just nonsense. So it's the it's the forward-thinking aspect of it, which you which is yeah. the concern. Because if you if you take it as a snapshot and say, well, the economy is looking pretty bad now, so we need to lower interest rates. That's that's sort of like a counter-cyclical approach. It's pretty well, pretty much what Keynesian economics has been advocating. Not on the interest rate. I mean, Keynes said the main controller is the level of government spending, yeah. the fiscal power, and that's what's being revived by modern monetary theory today. And saying that all the if you want to you know try to fine tune the economy, but if, it, but if it went if it went hand in hand though, that would make sense, wouldn't it? If you sort of like said, well, okay, we're we're facing a downturn right now, so let's have more government spending and let's have more expansionary measures. Let's lower interest rates so that we increase borrowing and and investment, so we we, we get out of this mess. Hand in hand, those two make sense, don't they? Except they often go in opposite directions. But yeah, fund, fundamentally, you've, you've, you've I mean uh, the. This is one of the reasons that MMT argues for a constant interest rate, because it isn't the fine tuner. The main thing, if you're going to have the capacity to change levels of demand in the economy, is government spending. That's what we've got. To, you know, there's an actual control principle that makes sense there, because government spending, excessive taxation, creates money, which is then spent and turnover and creates more GDP. Uh, so your actual control is fiscal policy, not to interest rates. But if you if you kept interest rates, and let's talk about MMT. I mean, because, you know, they seem to think we can get by with zero interest rates. But even if we said, well, we're going to have a, a set interest rate at 2%, if I think there's the, the, there's reasons developing for that could be pushing up inflation next year for, for whatever, and, there, you know, there are signs, obviously, that, you know, we could, and you, you might be wrong on it, but if I believe that we are going to have higher inflation next year, um, then that's going to be, that that is going to be, influencing what I am prepared to pay or accept when I'm either giving or taking a loan, won't it? It will for individuals, but that doesn't mean that the banks themselves should be, uh, you know, charged a, charged a different rate. Um, and it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean fine tuning. Um, interest rates come down to your expectations of future profit and it's the expectations that are volatile. Uh, there's no way that that's, this comes back to the point. It's not a control mechanism. Uh, it only works when it crushes the economy, and that's what happened out with Vocla. We had high inflation back then, up to I think up to twenty percent, or actually about seventeen percent in America. And Vocla was putting up the rate of interest in the belief that this would 
change people's expectations about the inflation, leading them to reduce their inflation, the rate of increase in prices, uh, very with very little shock to the economy. What it actually did, it caused the economy to tank. It had a recession. It broke the bargaining power of workers. It crushed the bargaining power of OPEC as well and caused a fall in uh, oil price and the reduction in, in wage demands because workers were massively unemployed. And that the recession, the vocal known as the Vokler recession. That's what broke the back of inflation at the time, not this fine-tuning thing, which is the way neoclassicals think about it. Right. But if we if we just had, you know, investment where you, you just pay two percent interest for whatever you did, isn't there a danger that, you know, you might suddenly get just, you know, in investment just steamrolls uh, and completely outstrips demand and then you get inflation coming out of it. I mean how how do you control that if you haven't got inflate interest rates to, to you know to try and vary the level of interest in taking out those loans. Again, in that case, fiscal policy is more effective at controlling demand than uh, the interest rate variations are. But how does fiscal and, policy uh, cont- contain a hot economy other than taxing more? That's the trouble. I mean, I would either rather see like bond sales to the private sector, uh, attractive interest rates to get them to you know, put their money into um, into a, a income-earning uh asset, uh, but therefore have less money to spend. And that was pretty much how bonds were used during the Second World War and very effectively. They didn't finance the war. They took money out of circulation and meant that people weren't buying you know, silk stockings. Then they were making more silk available for parachutes uh, and, and, and making sure the price uh, uh, Pressures weren't high, and we. And one of the remarkable things about the Second World War is an incredible increase in uh, investment, mainly directed at producing weapons and and uh, you know war machines as well. Um, but that did not cause massive levels of inflation. And so, if you want to look for successful inflation control, throw the New York Classical textbook away and go and take a look at what was done by people like John Kenneth Galbraith, who was one of the people in charge of price setting during the Second World War, to see why you had low inflation at a high period of extremely high aggregate demand. Yeah, well, we talked about that last week, didn't we? Very briefly, that you know the idea of you know right now that would have been a good idea, wouldn't it, to issue bonds to try and uh, curtail spending so people had less money right now, but they still had the money. Uh, to you know, at, at some point in the future, uh, the problem with that, of course, is that in the environment we are today. If the government was issuing bonds, everyone would see that just as an increase in government debt. That's our trouble. We've got a you know, totally distorted picture of what the government debt is about as well. And so, you know, no wonder we stuffed the bloody economy up. So, not to mention the environment. So, some MMTers say, well, the interest rate should be zero. I'm just wondering how does that work? Because there'll be absolutely no incentive to uh, to lend out money with that. I, I, mean, I must admit I haven't read this immaterial in detail by MMT people. I know the paper. I have to take a look at it at some point. Um, I I differ, I differ on, on the, in the sense of the rate you want banks to earn on bonds they buy off the government uh, because I think that affects the behaviour of banks. So there was a, in my father's day uh, when you know, banks we he described banks as three six three businesses. Lend and borrow at three, lend at six, and be on the golf course by three o'clock. And what I take out of that is that when banks, uh, when you had a reasonable rate of return on bonds, and there were like about three percent rate of return on bonds, uh, banks were buying them. The purchase of bonds was financed by the deficit the government ran, and they got a three percent rate of return, which basically covered their costs and a bit more for running the uh, transaction transaction system that enables a capitalist economy to function. So my feeling is, I would, I, I think. 
if you if you banks don't get a decent return on bonds, they're more likely to get involved in trying to do predatory lending to the uh, to the real economy, to the non-bank sector, and we get caught in asset bubbles. Uh, and I want banks, I want banks back on the golf course at three o'clock and not thinking they're masters <laughs> of the bloody universe. <laughs> they're not causing damage. Yeah, unless we did, and I mean, could we do something through policy? Uh, to change how money is invested. So, I mean, could we use it, for example, to try and uh, drive our green transition? So do we, for example, give uh, interest-free loans or low-interest loans to a company if it meets various criteria, which might be you know, more geared towards saving the planet, which is probably a good thing? And that's what you will see was the practices of countries like Japan and Korea and uh, and Singapore. Uh, they they had uh, direction of where credit could be could be sent, and uh, people would say that's a terrible intervention in the market economy. What it meant was banks weren't financing Ponzi schemes, which is what they've ended up doing otherwise. You know, financing share market speculation and financing speculation on property prices rather than providing working capital for real corporations. So, to a large degree, the the, the thing I would like to see is preventing banks for lending for asset speculation and therefore giving them only the option of supporting long-term consumption by uh, workers and middle class, which is where car loans and housing loans come in, and working capital and investment capital by corporations, which uh, would mean that you know money is being the finance sector is serving the industrial sector rather than being a parasite on top of it. But a part of that, to me, would be a, a rate of interest on government bonds of about three percent to cover the cost of running the private uh, transaction system. So we started today by talking about you know on an individual basis uh, when you lend money to somebody, you expect a bit back perhaps in terms of interest and that's based on how long they want to borrow the money for but perhaps also you know what inflation is running at currently uh, and maybe also you know whether you're the only one available to to lend the money or whether there's more people and that's sort of like the marketplace which central banks assume that the whole economy is working in you seem to be saying well that's that's not the way it works in in reality so therefore 95 percent of loans are by banks to non-banks yeah the the stuff i I spoke about is minor yeah Mm. with money created exactly so uh, so therefore the idea of having a set interest rate at whatever that rate is agreed to be uh, so that there's some certainty i guess then we get back to where we were talking about a week or two ago What's the other than the clearing function? What is the role of central banks? Then we start to say, well, maybe our friend in Argentina's got a point here. <laughs> well, the, the clearing house, but also they're the uh, the, the venue through which uh, bank uh, bond sales by the treasury are actually managed. They're not. Uh, they don't originate. Right, but it's a mechanical bank. function. Yeah, it's not. A, yeah. It's not a policy setting yeah, function. I, so the policy role of central banks disappears. It just becomes a mechanical institution that is, uh, you know, just a, in effect, a bunch of clerics doing their work. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're not. Uh, they're not the lords of the lords of the masters of the universe. They should be, you know, put in their place and just play the role of uh, enabling the interbank transactions to occur and uh, you know, managing government bond sales. But I would rather see them buying the, you know, in a lot of ways, buying the bonds outright because they're basically the, the cashier for the government. And that's what they should have their role as. The trouble is our mate in Argentina is also saying that there should be a balanced budget. So it's not what he's doing to the central banks that matters so much. It's what he's doing to the Treasury. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. but So we'll, we won't follow his uh, logic uh, to, the, to the final degree then because really what we were saying, I think, is then that 
if all of that mechanical mechanical functionality is sits with the, the central bank then that's fine because they are politically neutral. All of the policy decisions should be made by the Treasury, the Treasury that is avoiding making difficult decisions because they're blaming it all on the Bank of England or the, you know, whatever your respective central bank is. So the fiscal controls, which are really driving things, uh, should sit with the Treasury. Uh, interest rates and monetary policy, we're, we're in effect, we're sort of abandoning it in that case, aren't we? We're saying it doesn't exist anymore. I think it's not effective. And like I think the, the, the functioning of the economy since neoclassical economists took over control uh, in the 70s and uh, and emphasised the role of the central bank has been pretty bloody pathetic compared to what it was like beforehand. Uh, and the, the economic growth itself is an issue, which I keep on coming back to. But what they paraded themselves on was they're going to have a more stable economy and we'll grow more rapidly and we won't need all these welfare components so we can cut the government uh, government spending. In fact, the rate of economic growth after neoclassicals took over in the 70s, 75 roughly, has been about half what it was when the Keynesians were in charge in the Second World War in 1975. So, you know, it, it's a false promise. It's been a waste of time. We should abandon it and go back to where fiscal policy is the control and the central bank is basically a, a, a functionary, not, mm. a, uh, not a, a master control system. Wow. Doing away with monetary policy entirely is basically what you're saying, isn't it? Interesting stuff. All right, very good. Uh, We'll leave it there for now. Have a great Christmas, Steve. Uh, We'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay, bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.